This is the Download Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Thursday, May 25th, 2017, Episode 5, Art Gallery of Dongles. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, your host. This week, I'm joined by two wonderful guests. Back for another go. I think this means she's been on 60% of our episodes. We'll see if this trend continues. It's Lisa Schmeiser, Editor-in-Chief for the Super Site for Windows. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Eventually, I'll get a passing grade. Uh, oh, oh, my. You're, you're going for domination. That's fair. I am. <laughs> 80% or above. <laughs> a new guest to Download. Uh, but he's been on many other podcasts with me over the years. It is uh, James Thompson, who's a developer at TLA Systems. They are the home of PCALC and uh, Drag Thing, a classic Mac app, is how I met James back in the day. Let's not talk about how long ago that was. Uh, <laughs> but the best calculator app, which had a new version that just came out this week. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, a pleasure to join you on a new podcast. I think that means I get a new badge or something. Yeah, I think so. So wait for that uh, to come in the mail and you'll, you'll <laughs> add it to your wall of fame. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is what we're going to do, like we often do on this podcast, three best stories of the week as chosen by me, and of course, Download's intrepid podcast producer, Mr. Stephen Hackett, who is listening in right now. Hi, Stephen. I'm always listening, taking notes and listening all the time. And occasionally you pop up and, and say something, so don't be afraid. Don't, people don't be startled when a, a wild <laughs> Stephen Hackett appears. <laughs> it will happen from time to time. All right. Uh, topic number one. Uh, this week, boy, the news from Microsoft just keeps on rolling. This week, Microsoft unveiled the updated Surface Pro. So a few weeks ago, they unveiled their Surface laptop, new member of the Surface line. But this is the Surface Pro that you probably think of when you think of Surface. It's the tablet that's also kind of a two-in-one. You can attach a keyboard to it. But uh, it, it is uh, an interesting product that Microsoft is calling officially a laptop now, which is a little bit of a change in verbiage since it is essentially a tablet that you can attach to stuff. But um, it's a very interesting product. It's got the latest processors. There's some, some interesting twists. It's got a USB 3 standard port and not a USB-C port. And, uh, and Panos Panay of Microsoft threw some shade at Apple, I think, while he was talking <laughs> about, about that. There's a bunch of, uh, you don't get a pen in the box anymore. You got to buy all the accessories separately. It's got LTE support, which I believe is the first time. Now, Lisa, you write about Microsoft every day. Um, and did it, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you say on a previous show that you have been using a Surface? I do. I use both. Um, at this point, my tech ecosystem includes two different um, Mac laptops, a, one of the older Surfaces and an iPad. Those are all pretty much in regular daily use. That's good. That's that gives you a perspective that I think is uh, mm -hmm. I think is pretty useful. And covering Microsoft, I mean, the the uh, Microsoft has has feet on all of those platforms, so it's good to ha to be mm -hmm. all that. So, what what do you think about this uh, about the Surface Pro? I, I think this isn't. I've been fascinated this product by this product from the very beginning, uh, and and this is just the the next iteration in it. So, do you have any sort of like top top of the uh, top of the announcement reactions to to this product and what it means? If I were Lenovo, I'd be a little bit worried because Lenovo's got its yoga line with the with its with its hybrid tablet um, laptop. You, you know, you can fold it. It's got the hinges. 
And Lenovo machines are generally pretty nice. I've had a chance to use a couple of the different yoga line ones as review models and things like that. This looks and feels beautiful. Like they really, really followed the Dell Q because, and I'll, I'll loop around to explain why I invoked Dell in a minute. They've really okay. followed the Dell Q and it feels really nice. It's, um, it's beautiful. Like they seem to recognize that these things are actually a consumer good as opposed to simply a tool that you use to do your job. And, um, I honestly can't wait to see if I can try and expense one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason I said the Dell thing is a couple years ago, Dell hired away, um, somebody from Nike and a couple other high end, higher end consumer brands, uh, to be their head of design. And Dell has been making a concerted effort to, up the user experience, like the, the, the look in the field, they've been, Dell has been making a huge effort on it. Like they have a whole, they, they have a whole array of materials that make the laptop fun to touch and to hold. And, um, they've worked really hard on the screens. And it seems like Microsoft is finally getting to the point where they're like, yeah, this is really, um, a sensory experience as well as a, as well as a cognitive one. So I find it really interesting that that's where we're going with that too. Let me ask you about this laptop thing. One of the things that's always baffled me about the Surface Pro, which is, a, a, again, a really interesting product, is it's shaped like, like a tablet, but it's got the kickstand, it's got the attachable keyboards, which you can buy, um, and they've, they've upgraded those. They've got that same uh, fabric keyboard uh, version that, the, that you can get on the, on, the, on the Surface notebook, the Surface laptop. What... Um, so they're calling it a laptop, but it's still got lapability problems. As uh, the the way I read it, I was reading a couple of stories <laughs> about that. Where because it's because it's not hinged like I mean, there is a Surface Book that you can buy that has the hinge and a Surface laptop, and this one doesn't have it. So it, it, that always struck me as being kind of like puts this product in a weird place where it's a it's a tablet, yes, but if you want to use it as a laptop, it's got some ergonomic issues. Is that would you say that's accurate, or have you not experienced that? So I'd say that it's accurate because um, most of the time when I use it, I have to use it as a, on a flat surface. And I've tried covering events using a tablet versus using a laptop because you think, oh, it's a tablet. It's smaller. I can just type on the keyboard and and, and all that. And it's tougher because um, it's it's not built to grown-up scale. So I also wonder if some of the design here is in response to that kind of feedback where you have people going, look, I'm in a professional environment. Um, I, I have to have a way to try and, and type and they're like, okay, maybe we can come up with a solution. And in theory it works, but in practice, not so much. <laughs> Everything gets a little shaky if it's on your lap. Exactly. The, the thing I want to point out though, is they do have a lot of, su- they have the support now for the surface dial, which is their weird hockey puck looking yeah. thing. Then, um, and I think it's smart that they've made the pen extra. Microsoft has been not overtly aggressive, but very stealthily trying to, acculturate its users to the notion that touch is an integrated part of the UI and the UI experience. And I, I feel like this computer is another step forward with that, especially with them pointing out that they are supporting the um, the surface dial. And they do expect you to start thinking, um, kind of exploding your perspective beyond what you can tap on your computer or, or click on the command pad. So this is interesting to me from the perspective of a developer, because you know, Microsoft has gone in a completely different direction to Apple on this stuff. And what I want to know um, is how well does it work having this sort of machine that is a a touch machine and also a laptop machine? And does the software take advantage in both ways? Um, So in Windows 10, yes. Windows 10 actually has fairly good touch capability built into it. Um, My chief contributor who 
mucks around. He's on the insider, the fast track insider ring. And he's really big into this is super, super excited about using touch and using a pen and the surface dial. So, but I think we're still in a phase where for people who have come up through computing and are in their twenties, their thirties, their forties. Um, well, actually I would say just the thirties and forties, the twenties are different. I think touch is going to be, they're going to have to be guided through it. Whereas I think for people in their teens and their twenties who are already growing up in gaming environments and don't think of interfaces, I mean, they swipe, they swipe everything. They'll, it'll be easier for them. And, um, the complaints they'll have are, I don't think we can articulate the complaints they'll have about touch, but I can assure you that Microsoft's touch technology is surprisingly good. I think the challenge with, uh, a product like this is that it's a it's a tablet fundamentally in shape and yeah it's a pc that runs windows which means that you can you can dock it or attach it to a keyboard and you've got a pc that's all that's all fantastic but but the the knock on it with earlier versions of windows was but how is it when it's a tablet when you don't have an external keyboard or mouse and you have to just use touch and that for me that's where the rubber meets the road with a product like this is windows 10 touch interface where it's just me and my fingertips can you know, does that experience work well, or do you sit there thinking, I really need to attach the keyboard now? It's better than it used to be, because when the first iteration of Windows 10 came out, and um, when I got previews for Office 2016, Microsoft also shipped me an, a, a then new, the, the 2015 iteration of Surface to use. And um, I had to keep going back to the keyboard, and now that's just not the case. Uh, that's they're good. iterative. Um I think so it comes back to I think to a cultural thing in general where Microsoft fairly or unfairly has a reputation as missing as as a company that misses the mark or doesn't execute right the first time but one of the things I've always, I've found interesting especially in covering Windows 10 and with the Surface Now is they're an incredibly iterative company and they take feedback and they act on it almost immediately and they're pretty transparent about why they do and um over the last few years, especially as they've pushed towards more mobile coverage and as, as they've rolled out things like the surface dial and tried to foster user experience, they really are trying to push people towards the idea that touch is, is an extension of what you've been doing with your keyboard. All you have to do is like reach out and touch the screen or all you have to do is reach out and grab your pencil or your pen. They're really devoted to the idea that you can capture and manipulate information in a variety of ways. So let's let's talk about the the ports because I think this is an interesting larger question for uh, for electronic devices in general. It's not just even computers. Uh, Microsoft's decision with with this brand new product shipping in June of 2017 is it's got two ports on it, uh, a, a standard USB A, you know USB three port, and a uh, and a mini display port for video out. Plus, it's it's a special proprietary Surface Dock thing that can do all sorts of different stuff. Now, I, I what's interesting here is that you know USB C is out there. A lot of uh, people are talking about it. Intel is pushing it. Apple has switched all of its laptops to USB-C. And with this product, Microsoft said, basically, I mean, they said it. Panos Pena actually said it. Uh, we'll get there eventually with USB-C, but this is what our customers want to use today, so we're going to stick with it. This is just, it's interesting to see the, the, the two sides of the coin here, which is product that is using old tech, because let's be honest, it's out there, everybody's using it, versus sort of trying to point the way to the future and saying, you know, in the end, we everybody's going to be using this new thing, so we might as well get there now. What do you, what do you think about Microsoft's choice here? I wonder if they just couldn't get the engineering challenge right in time. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, that's what it sounds like. I'm like, oh, this is what the customer is doing, because you've already got phones that are charging on USB-C, and 
like you've pointed out, the tech is out there already. So if it's there and it's an emerging standard that's already been adopted by other hardware makers, why why not? <laughs> so, so maybe maybe an excuse. I mean, I could see I can see the argument. I can see the argument because we've heard anybody who's been watching what Apple's been doing has heard the complaints on the other side, which is now I've got to buy a dock or a dongle. And what what Panos Pane said was that Microsoft will off, offer a uh, USB C dock, uh, you know, dongle thing using the Surface dock connector later if you want to go down that route. But um, you know, it's painful to go through a port transition, but. At the same time, it seems weird to me that Microsoft's hardware, because the 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 Surface laptop is like this too, is shying away from from USB C. At uh, it just it seems like a weird decision. James, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange to me as you as with a lot of this stuff, it is the sort of anti Apple or the you know the alternate universe Apple um, <laughs> and how they're doing things. And you know, I mean, I I. I'm running a MacBook Pro here, an old school one with, you know, proper ports on it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm still loath to, to give up, you know, the, even things like, you know, the card reader and stuff and, and go to something that's purely USB-C. So, you know, from my perspective, I can actually see what they're saying, but, you know, the, 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 the wind is definitely uh, moving in the other direction. And uh, from, you know, they would probably be able to take advantage of a lot of uh, the USB-C ecosystem that's springing up around the Apple stuff now uh, on their devices. So, yeah, I'm not sure why they didn't do it. Other than, I mean, what Lisa said, which is maybe this is a reason following the fact that they uh, they built this stuff. They started designing this stuff a little too early for that, and it and they it got delayed long enough that they um, that they couldn't ship it. Because I mean, my my problem my problem with it is buying a product that I know has a, has a set of ports that are about to become uh, obsolete, obsolete everywhere, mm-hmm. and that means I'm mm-hmm. going to be adapting for the entire lifetime of the product I just bought, as opposed to buying a product with weird new ports and realizing you'll have to adapt for a little while until everybody catches up. And maybe that's maybe it's mm-hmm. that simple that there's some psychology there of uh, Microsoft thinks their customers are, would prefer that approach and Apple thinks its customers prefer the other one. I don't know. Yeah, lagging edge approach is, a, is one of the things I've also noticed when I cover Microsoft events is that a lot of my fellow reporters have just a, an insane variety of, of dongles and plugs that they take with them to everything. So if you need to be connected to Ethernet because there isn't wireless, they have they have the they have the USB to Ethernet port the dongle like right there and waiting. Sometimes they even have extras. I have quite um, an <laughs> impressive Apple dongle collection of my own. It is I think that is the duty anybody who's got one of these computers and puts puts some of these odd ports to use ends up in Dongle Town. I feel like we could probably do like an art gallery on one wall of our office where we just have them hung up and then do like a little placard underneath each one. Hmm. And it would double as storage. Too. That's an idea. I just had a great idea. The, um, anyway. the, uh, the real challenge is to connect them all. Yeah, I think I think you're right that it might be part of the customer psychology where it's leading edge versus lagging edge. And um, it's also easy to forget that Microsoft as a company, one of the tremendous challenges they have is they are still supporting customers whose technology is, is 10 to 15 years old. And so 
for them, I think backwards compatibility is a huge priority, um, at least, you know, on this, on, on the sales and support side. And so maybe that trickles into the process too, where they're like, yes, we could put it in the USB-C, but literally nobody's going to be able to use it for five years. So why bother? And then when you announce it, you can talk about like, it's a big deal. I was curious to, to what everybody thought about Microsoft's event strategy, sort of on the whole. I feel like over the five weeks we've done this show, Microsoft has been in the news, I think almost every week with the education event and they had build. Now they mm-hmm. have this. Um, oh, the, the, the Shanghai event. Yeah. 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 So is that just to stay in the news cycle or do you think there's a, a strategy here to, to trickle these things out as opposed to somebody again, like Apple or even Google to have one big event, everything's in there. And then we all just kind of sort through the wreckage for a couple of weeks. <laughs> So that's a, a great question. And I've kind of wondered about that too, because they do have Ignite coming up in a couple of months. And although that's going to be mostly Microsoft customers and, and certified professionals, they'll, they'll roll out and announce some technology there too. Um, Google IO was this past week. And so part of me wonders if, if this was meant to try and, uh, divert a little attention. Um, and part of it is also, I wonder about the timing of the events because um, the availability of the surface is not in keeping with their usual release cycle for it. Um, they typically release them toward surfaces towards the end of the year and they have one really great quarter that's propelled by surface sales. This past quarter's financial results were actually pretty shaky because of a drop in surface sales. And so I wonder how much of this is also the company trying to show investors that, yeah, we do have stuff in the pipeline. It's not just a once a year cycle. This is something where we're con- where we're continuously rolling out products, so we should have a more steady revenue flow. I'm a uh, big fan of the rolling thunder approach, actually, um, because as a media person, I really like. I mean, look, we've covered Microsoft. If they had put this in mm-hmm. build, we would have covered it as a part of one conversation, and instead, we're covering it at a at a different time. I think that there's a lot to be gained from that, unless you know, it, it, as opposed to just having it be we dropped we dropped everything right now and we've blown you away, and then we're going to walk away. I think there's some strength in it. I do wonder about the strategy of it because it's a, a bunch of little bursts, but it does mean people keep talking about Microsoft's products. The Surface products are different enough that I feel like keeping them separate in terms of rollout is helpful. Otherwise, with the name, they all just kind of smush together. So I, I think it's a smart strategy on their part. I wonder what motivated them to try it, but it, yeah, it kind of works for me. They're losing, they've lost a lot of ground in education. Google has pretty quietly, or not so quietly in some cases, taken over a lot of that market. And I would suspect that one of the reasons the education event was separate and as big as it was, was it was Microsoft trying to make sure it could distinguish that, that product line and those opportunities separate from this surface, which is clearly aimed at, or, clearly aimed at a more corporate slash consumer audience. Um, you know, they didn't mention anything about any of the educational stuff or tie-ins here. And it seems to me they're trying, they're trying to keep those audience segments very separate so that they can refine and pitch really specific messages at really specific events. One of the questions that I had for you was what's the sort of scale of these surface products in terms of like, uh, sales versus, you know, like iPads or, or MacBook Pros or something. Are they equivalent or, uh, is it significantly less or more? Most of the time when Microsoft, um, quantifies surface sales, it's going to be in terms of, of millions of dollars and not units sold. Right. So I've got a I've got a story here that says last uh last fall at their uh mm-hmm. at their at their quarter ending September, 
there was almost a billion dollars in surface revenue for Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Apple's uh, iPad revenue, which I'm looking at here, they're averaging, even now at the low ebb of iPad revenue, about $4.5 billion in revenue. So surface is a much smaller uh, market than the iPad is, let's say, or, or, and the Mac is in that ballpark too. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a growing area for for Microsoft and and also Microsoft Apple is 100% of its market Microsoft is also trying to set a, you know set a, the stage for its entire platform by doing these things and then letting the you know even though yeah it, it makes Lenovo angry and other partners angry it is also trying to kind of show what Windows can do so it's a little bit but yeah it's a it's a smaller business yeah. for sure I don't think you can discount that and they've not come out and said this overtly but given the partnerships they've had with HoloLens so far, I don't think you can discount corporate sales down the line later where they'll probably do a, a, a HoloLens plus Surface pre- uh, plus Surface package, um, and and propagated across industry that industries that way. Um, some of the demos I've seen with HoloLens, for example, talk about being able to walk into Lowe's and plan a kitchen, and um, one of the emerging topics that's come up in several of their customer events is how to use Windows computing in a non-desk environment where you're standing all day or where you have a highly mobile workforce, like people who have to check inventories at warehouses. So I really think that they're banking on the Surface Pro being the machine that you give to a workforce that's out in the field a lot or away from a desk a lot. Mm, makes sense. Well, we should move on to another another topic uh, that was that was really great. Let me remind everybody where you can find us. Follow us on Twitter at underscore download FM. That's super easy. You can go to relay.fm slash download for all the episodes. You can, of course, subscribe if you aren't already in uh, your podcast player of choice. And if you want to suggest stories for us to use on the show, hashtag download stories is very helpful. In fact, one of our stories today was absolutely suggested by a few people on Twitter, and we appreciate that too. Okay, topic number two is an interesting one. It's spinning off of Stephen Levy's article about the Apple campus that they're building, the new Apple Park. But I I don't want to really talk about Apple's campus design and issues around that. I want to talk about something that people noticed about Apple's campus, which is that it's got a big uh, gym for, for employees and, uh, and no on campus, uh, childcare facility. Now, several stories were written about this, as you might expect. There are some uh, tech companies that have on-site or nearby childcare facilities of some sort, including Google and Cisco. There are a bunch of tech companies that don't, like Microsoft and Facebook and Amazon. Um, Apple actually did at one point have childcare facility and then did away with it. I, I, you know, I think my question here is trying to get uh, in the larger issues of of. Silicon Valley corporate culture about what you build into your campuses and what you don't and what you try to do to keep your employees at work versus what you don't. Uh, and I don't think this is a black and white issue where gyms are bad and childcare is good or vice versa. I think it's much more complicated than that. Lisa, what do you what did you think when you saw this story about Apple's uh, <laughs> de- decisions here? So have I told you about my last trip down to eBay? No. Because I went down to eBay's campus and was in their user experience lab and poking around. And, of course, the eBay employees gave me a tour of the campus before we went to the lab. 
and they have basketball courts. They have a cafeteria that the day I was there, they had a farmer's market stand set up so that people could buy vegetables. They had a dry cleaning truck there so people could drop off and pick up laundry. And they had a dental checkup truck there so that people could go get their teeth cleaned or get checked up and then get back to work. And he's they're rattling off all of these things they have. And I said, do you have on-site child care? And the young man stopped and looked at me blankly. He's like, why would we do that? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wouldn't say it hit me, but it reminded me that with a lot of these campuses, the goal is to so thoroughly erase the boundaries between work and not work that you that that you can basically have the job and or the company tie up a lot of the employees mental and emotional resources as well as their practical time. Because what is the incentive to leave if your job takes care of everything your mother or your partner used to do? <laughs> um, and the, the problem with having a childcare center, like in addition to the legal problems that may arise or the, the safety and the zoning pro- regulations, because, you know, childcare centers don't operate in a vacuum. But the problem is, is that when you, start acknowledging family life that does encourage employees to start putting boundaries down on where their time goes and how much of it they're using. And that's not in the best interest of a lot of these corporate cultures. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I worked at Apple in the late nineties, uh, early 2000 and the corporate culture there, I'm told that things are a lot worse than they used to be. Uh, but there was definitely, uh, they were, they were geared towards you not leaving, uh, not having any significant other, if at all possible. Uh, be- because the, you know, all, all of these things were seen as distractions. You know, if you, if you had a partner, they might be upset that you were working the all weekends and evenings and stuff. Uh, so, you know, it'd be better if you didn't have one. And this kind of the attitude that I encountered a lot over there was one of the reasons why I didn't move out there. And, uh, I, I remember what one of the things that happened was, uh, we were working towards, uh, I think it was a Mac world in, in 2000. And, uh, effectively Christmas was cancelled. I, I was told, you know, well, I can't leave. I can't go back and, you know, uh, uh, see my, uh, uh, fiance, uh, or, you know, my family or anything, you know, and I'll be, I'll spend the, the time working there. And at this point, you know, all the work was effectively done. It wasn't like there, w- there was like a, a huge, uh, need for me to be around. And, and I said, uh, basically, no, under no circumstances will I be doing that. And, and, uh, I, I went home. And I think that was a great part of uh, me getting an ultimatum to move to California or else shortly after that. There seemed to be a culture, even back then, of bringing in very young, single people without attachments, working them to death, paying them vast amounts of money, of course, Um and uh, then those people burning out in their sort of uh, late twenties, thirties, or whatever, and 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 looking at the, the the new campus, the idea of having this, you know, you know, you never have to leave. Th- this does seem like a negative to me, and not just from the what it does to the individuals, uh, but what it does to the corporate culture of not seeing outside that group of people and that campus and 
you know, if you if you're not sort of dealing with in quotes normal society on a on a day to day basis, then you might come up with decisions that are not actually going to be good for the rest of the world. I've had more than one person liken uh, Apple Park to the Hotel California. That <laughs> 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 it's that it's uh you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. I I don't I don't have a problem with the idea fundamentally, right? That uh, help being helpful to your employees, right? Having the on-site dry cleaning because you keep you you keep working and you need to clean your clothes. You, I, I get the convenience aspect, but on-site food because you don't want to have to drive. I, I've never worked in a place with on-site food, and it was always a challenge of like, oh man, I gotta walk around and find a place and wait in line and all that. Super easy to have it there. I get it, but yeah, there's this second layer behind it, which is really the message is we are we are. It's it's not necessarily one precedes the other, but they go hand in hand the idea that we provide all these facilities because and to facilitate your working here all the time and not having anything on the outside and the and, and, and when a company like Apple which recent which recently announced that they have taken one of their uh, one of their uh executives and promoted her to vice president for inclusion and diversity and when you're talking about the diversity at your company and one of the things you're doing is making it very easy to get food or work out but much harder to have a family you're sending a message to your workers in general and your women workers in particular that if they care about that they're not going to make it easy for them Patagonia is actually a great example of this. And Cliff Bar is another one because I my office in Emeryville was near Cliff Bar and they had an on-site daycare and preschool as well. So I think it's something perhaps the outdoor industry is really into that. I don't know. Um, because while on-site daycare sounds awesome, it's also another way to guarantee that people don't leave their job because if you're like, well, it's I true. really like to leave my... And this is what I don't understand about companies that aren't considering it is if you're willing to try and retain 20 somethings by encouraging them to make the locus of their emotional and mental and logistic energy their workplace. Because when you spend this much time at work, your friends are also your coworkers and vice versa. You all have this shared experience and it makes it harder for people to leave because they're like, well, not only will I lose the dentist that comes on site, or I worked at a place one time where there was a barber who came in every three weeks. Um, you lose the barber, you lose the the grocery delivery, you, you lose this. I also lose contact with the only people I've had a chance to socialize with for the last three years. Um, it's weird to me that more companies don't think if we can sell really great on-site daycare and preschool, then we can hold on to these employees until their kids are in school because they're not going to want to leave and disrupt their kids' routines. Um, it's amazing to me that more companies don't think about that. But the question I'd lob back is, how is retention um, regarded as a corporate value in Silicon Valley by and large? Because what this ultimately comes down to, in addition to what kind of employees do you want to attract? What kind of employees do, do you want to keep them for the long terms? Do you actually value having somebody there for five to 10 years because of the institutional knowledge and the experience and the experience that they've got going on? Or is it actually in the best interest of the company to keep churning through people because this way there's an, you know, there's an infinite supply of labor and it's, it's ultimately cheaper than having, you know, a cohort of 30 somethings who are demanding child care and who do get paid more and who do use their benefits and ultimately cost the company more. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing is the sort of the work life balance question and Silicon Valley 
certainly from the outside and the limited time that I've been there, there doesn't seem to be yeah. much balance <laughs> no. uh, away from work. Uh, and, you know, if you're not in your car or bus commuting, you know, you're, you're working or sleeping. I know a couple of Googlers and that's basically it where they see their kids on the weekends. Yeah. So, and, um, so I think you're right, yeah. Lisa. It's almost like we're, at, we're asking the wrong question here. And what we should be saying is why are tech companies not doing more on-site childcare in order to further create a place where their employees are, uh, are isolated from the rest of the world? You could create an entire generation of children whose childhood memories are growing up at the <laughs> Apple Park running around inside that giant ring. And then they just, I think maybe you you just uh, you got them for life at that point. You put them to work. Yeah. So uh, if you wait long enough, you can you can have them work. There, so. First, they become interns. So one of the things that military contractors do that is actually kind of genius to switch industries is um, a lot of military contractors hire people who have you know been discharged from the military, and a lot of times people in the military haven't had a chance. To, you know, if you've been enlisted, you don't have a chance to get a college education. And what these contractors will do is say, "We will fund your education. You can get the BS or the BA." Um, all that we ask is that you remain employed with us the whole time and for a few years afterwards, um, and that you maintain a certain grade point average. And this is how they get lifers who, by the time they've been at the company for 10 to 15 years, have an enormous network of contacts through the Pentagon, and they've sat through enough RFPs where they know how to write a proposal to get the millions of dollars they need. And their security clearances are easy peasy because everyone knows what they've been doing for the last 15 years. And all they had to do was offer a benefit that, you know, clearly paid off because they're like, we'll pay for your college. And then when you get the degree, we increase your salary by 10%. And, um, it seems like you could – it seems like employee retention is actually better for a company's bottom line in a lot of ways. But the problem is it looks expensive up front because some people will look at it and go, well, once they have kids, they're using more of their health care benefits. Or once they have kids, they start taking more vacation days. But on the other hand, you don't have to pay to recruit talent, onboard it, train it, and keep it around. Um, like that's a one-time expense. <laughs> And you can balance, and you can balance that expense against, well, someone took their kid to the to the doctor for a well baby check, you know. I have to say, when I so when I uh, bought my house, um, I was I was going to get married when I got my first job, but when I bought my house, and when I um, when when we I told my boss that we were having a baby. Um, the reaction both times was not disappointment that I was going to be distracted with things outside of my job. The reaction was, oh, good, because <laughs> oh, you've got bills to pay and you're going to need yeah. to work in order to pay the bills. And, there, you know, there are different ways of looking at all of this. It just uh, I think it's I think it's interesting, right, because you can say this is this is hostile to uh, to parents and uh, and specifically to moms, if, especially if they want to do best breastfeeding and things like that. You could also say that this is just a weird outlier of Silicon Valley's broken or skewed culture of work-life balance that that they've chosen some things and not others, but the larger issue is the balance. I, I don't know. It is. I try to imagine going to work at Apple Park every day. On, on one level, I view it as being a utopia kind of thing where it's just like, welcome to the world we made. And on another level, I view it and it's like, yeah, but it's kind of a hermetically sealed utopia. I start to think about science fiction novels and just and like most utopias, you know, the story is about getting out of them. Uh, so I I wonder about that. Or yeah. it's about who they keep out because sure. you know I'm looking at the I'm looking at the campus and the amenities and it seems really designed to to incubate this idea that there is us and there is them and here is the bubble and and don't venture outside the bubble. Um, I feel. 
paradoxically, I mean, Silicon Valley likes to pride itself on disruption and being on the cutting edge. But I really feel like the the churn and burn workaholic culture that is valorized at a lot of these places is actually about 10 to 15 years behind where companies yeah. need to be right now. You would think that somebody would see an inefficiency in the market, that the fact is that that how inefficient uh, – eating through 20-something talent until they burn out and paying them in order to do that is versus some other approach that probably other tech companies do take and that maybe it's tech companies we don't uh, we don't focus on so much who are employing people in their 30s or 40s. Or look outside tech yeah. and other sectors that are, I mean, tech is what we cover and y- you can say, oh, they make crazy money and they're influencing the world and so on and so forth. But there are tons of other industries in the United States that also drive the economy and have different models for how they attract, cultivate, retain, and deploy their talent. Um, I mean, the really dumb thing about this is I'm sure we all have stories of people who did go to Google, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, did a couple years there until they were crispy, got left for their own sanity, and then like turned around and developed a product that they promptly sold back to their old employer. And think about how cheap it would have been if their employers had actually kept them there and had them develop it on company time. James? Well, the thing that I, well, (laughs) (laughs) you you resemble this story just slightly. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I remember a lot of people, uh, because I, I was based out of Apple in Ireland and there were a lot of people in the early days. It was like, well, I'll go over and I'll do like my five year tour of duty and that will get me enough money to pay off the mortgage on my house and do this, this and this. But you know, I, I'm good. I know that I'm going to be in for like five years of never seeing anybody else, but I'll just do this and then I'm out. And of all the people, I think only one person managed to do that, um, partially because he got hit by a bus later, but that, that's another story. Um, and su- survived, I should point out. Good. Uh, but uh, it, it was a lot of people just got sucked into that kind of, uh, oh, I'm now getting paid, you know, like – hundreds of thousands of dollars and i'm getting all these stock options which you know if i leave the company are going to be worthless um so that there was huge uh a huge pressure on people to to stay and they got they got into this lifestyle and you know it's like people uh were spending you know spending the money that they were getting Uh and had had this lifestyle uh and then uh that was one of the things like when I got to the point where it was like, am I going to move to California or am I going to leave and do my own thing? And I decided, you know, I would actually like, I would like to make less money, but also be less stressed and be in more control of my life. And, you know, I work from home. Um, I think we all work from home, I'm assuming. And, uh, you know, I can control my day to a certain extent. Like, I, I was saying earlier, I've spent most of the day. It, this is like one of the sunniest days in Glasgow that it has been for many years. And <laughs> uh, we have guests staying with us and we all went to the seaside and, you know, like had ice creams and fish and chips. And it was lovely. Uh, and I have the power to say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work hard at this time. And, you know, I can manage my time and in theory, you know, be a better time manager at, at this stuff. I mean, it doesn't, always work out at all uh but but yeah i mean i i i i worked for apple and then i i went off and i wrote 
a, a variety of products which compete with Apple, some of which uh, actually Apple licensed um, and included with their with their machines and paid me more money than my, for like what was effectively two weeks work, more money than I made in my salary for the previous year. And <laughs> You're living the dream. <laughs> I mean, that was a one-off, but it, it, it it's. I, I came out of that deciding basically, I never want to work in Silicon Valley because I've seen what it's doing to people, and I would rather have, you know, I, I I only need to make enough money. I mean, okay, I don't have kids, which is a factor, but I only need to make enough money that I can live reasonably comfortably, and I don't need to make all the money. And, and so I, you know, I think that optimization of, you know, I would actually like to have friends and enjoy things. Oh, that's where you fail. <laughs> it seems obvious to me, but, you know, yeah, this is why I fail. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure this topic will be coming up again at some point. It is one of the fascinating things about Silicon Valley and the tech industry. And uh, I wonder, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody could argue that this is just how it has to be. I'm not sure I believe that, but I'm sure somebody could argue it. Um, let me tell you about a story you might have missed this week. And this actually happened earlier today as we're recording this. Uh, Walt Mossberg posted his last weekly column, cross-posted at Recode and The Verge. Walt has been covering technology weekly since 1991 a very long time and this was his last column he's retiring he'll still be around here and there but this is his last column and uh it ends with him declaring and i love this thanks for reading mossberg out <laughs> which just kills me but uh thanks to walt mossberg he he name checked the commodore pet in there and i am old enough to understand that that was yes, my first that computer <laughs> my first computer was a commodore pet and uh just uh just wanted to salute walt because that is he he worked really hard to in many ways define what writing about technology for a general audience would be uh, there were a lot of people who came after him who did the same thing uh, and continue to do that to this day and trying to explain technology and computers to Wall Street Journal readers in 1991 I cannot imagine what a difficult challenge that must have been and he obviously uh, succeeded greatly people don't know that Walt used to he's based in DC he used to write about politics for the Wall Street Journal and so it was quite a career change for him to do that and he was wildly successful at it so thank you to Walt Mossberg for 26 years of writing a weekly column. Whew, wow. wow. And uh, on to better and greater things and more time <laughs> with your family and uh, life uh, life balance and all of those things that happen when you retire. So congratulations to Walt. Uh, topic, the last that I wanted to bring up, and this is one of the reasons that I was motivated to have James on the show because he has a little bit of unpleasant experience with this topic. The Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, ruled this week about a very particular case that you would think might not be uh, super relevant to the tech industry, uh, in that it was a, a case involving Kraft Foods. <laughs> uh, of course, mac and cheese. How could that not be mm -hmm. uh, a motivator for the tech industry? But what the Supreme Court in T.C. Heartland versus Kraft Foods ruled was that suits... To, uh, against businesses need to be uh, litigated in the place where the business is incorporated or has committed acts of patent infringement or and has a regular and established pace, a place of business. This is a big deal 
for the tech industry because of all of the software patent lawsuits that have been out there because they all used to get filed in West Texas in a court seen to be very much favorable to patent owners. Basically, the judges there really like patent owners, and therefore you're in bad shape if the lawsuit is filed there. And now, based on the Supreme Court ruling, that can't happen unless you happen to be doing business in Texas, in which case, I'm sorry. But uh, in, mo- in most cases, this is going to change it. It's going to have to be home court instead of uh, the the special patent court. Now, James, you have some familiarity with patents and Texas law, do you not? Ah, sadly, I do. Um, so I, I, I've sort of blanked quite a lot of the traumatic memories, <laughs> so the dates are, are wrong here. But it, <laughs> let's say it was about six years ago. Um, we had there was you know a buzz at the door. And there was a, a FedEx parcel. And there's that question, you know, did you order anything? No, I don't think I ordered anything. And there was this large sort of, you know, like a, a ream of paper in a box was delivered. And I thought, I have no idea what this is. And I, and I opened it. And uh, it was a, a, a company was saying that I had infringed one of their patents. And basically, they were going to take me to court. And the, the patent in question was to do with, uh, in-app purchasing. Basically, they claimed to say that they had, so the patent was like 20 years old, was just about to expire, was so broad that they were using it to cover in-app purchase, uh, something to do with printers, and all, all my, it, if you read it, it was, it didn't say, you know, this company has invented in-app purchase. It was like this company has developed an apparatus for this, you know, this bit of software talking to this bit of software. And it was invented in a time before any of the things that they were claiming infringed had ever existed. Yes. And then began a, a sort of three plus year period of uh, dealing with this, which was probably the worst three years in my professional life. And, you know, and I, I'm counting my time in Apple as well there. Uh, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> and it, it was, yes, it, it was very in, a very interesting experience where I learned so many things about the patent system in America that I kind of wish I never knew. I apologize to all of West Texas. There's not a lot out there, but to everybody in Lubbock, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, because it's the Eastern District of Texas, not the West Texas, East Eastern yeah. District of Texas. I, I just went to the Guadalupe Mountains National Park in West Texas. It was lovely. So, we yes, we love West Texas. East Texas, <laughs> you're on the list because of your uh, your your court. But uh, so, yeah, they filed Lodsys, this company, this weird shell company filed it, as many do. Th- there are stories about how this area in East it, where the Eastern Di- District of Texas court is full of these sort of shell companies that are empty that are being used as shells by patent trolls in order to file these claims in this part of Texas because it's so convenient because it's perceived to be super favorable to them. So you got to be introduced to the Eastern District of Texas. Well, that's what I was actually kind of curious about is with this ruling, do you think there's a possibility that you're going to see a cottage industry rise where there's 
more incorporation or people try to maintain an actual physical presence in this district to keep this up? Or is that simply too expensive compared to the riches that can be made by soaking other people for their work? So the change is that it has to be based on where the person being sued, the corporation being sued has its presence, which means that unless you're unlucky, and I did see a couple app developers, James, you may have seen them too, who are actually registered in Texas. <laughs> and I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> oh, uh, no. that, that's not mm-hmm. good for them. But uh, it, it means, well, first off, it means that a lot of these will be filed in Delaware because so many American corporations are incorporated in Delaware. Um, and if you've got a presence like, if you're a company like Apple, for example, that has the retail presence all over the all over the U.S., then I believe they can be sued there if they're considered having a, an established place of business in that area. But it, what it does mean uh, is that, and I don't actually know what it means for somebody like James, who's outside the US. That was an interesting uh, footnote in the thing that basically said, um, it is undecided what this means for people outside the US. Interesting. So it it could be that uh, this literally changes nothing for me. The, yeah, so th- there's so many details about this. I was reading through it, um, you know, bringing up some traumatic memories. But the... Um, so, yeah, what it could mean is that, that all the East Texas business gets redistributed around, you know, like five other places in the US. You know, it might not be that this now sort of equally distributes everything across the whole right. um, United States. Um, and it doesn't stop overly broad software patents being granted in the first place or ones that, you know, were granted 20 years ago. Uh, and the, the thing with a lot of this stuff is, uh, you know, you don't actually need to sort of take somebody to court. You can just send them a letter saying, we are going to take you to court unless you do X, Y, yeah, and Z. And, and, and pay me. I think the software patent issue is obviously the larger issue issue here. And yeah. I, I'm not one of those people who wants to say we shouldn't have patents at all. People who legitimately create things where through their hard work, they create something that nobody else has done before and everybody else wants to use it. I can get the argument there. But in your case, James, you made the point, this is something that was filed that about something that was ridiculously broad was not really directly applicable to what ended up being developed and yet was a piece of intellectual property owned by some shell company that could extract money from people because they kind of bought a winning lottery ticket and or or found a winning lottery ticket even not not necessarily even bought it and that's the that's the bigger issue with a lot of this is that is that pa- the patent system especially for software has be it's supposed to encourage innovation but in a lot of ways in our industry, it has discouraged innovation. I'm reminded of the fact that the MP3 patents have all finally expired now, which led one of their patent holders, Fraunhofer, to declare the format dead and a lot of uh, bad (laughs) news outlets to parrot that when, in fact, that format is now alive because it's unencumbered and anybody can write MP3 encoders and decoders and nobody has to pay anybody anything for them. It's kind of a big deal and it shows you, I know for a fact, multiple software developers who were not developing software because the patent encumbrance was in place. So if the argument is that you're supposed to protect creators, I get wanting to protect creators. Uh, you know, James, you make a living writing software. That's important that people that you be protected from people <laughs> ripping off your app, for example, which is which is where copyright law comes in. But the idea that you're you have to watch your step in natural progression of your software because of some random thing that was incorrectly granted broadly 20 years ago is 
kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, in, in this case, when because it was in-app purchase, it wasn't, I wasn't, I hadn't implemented any of these technologies either. I was using Apple's technologies as supplied to me, uh, you know, which, which complicated the case and more and stuff. But uh, one of the things that I encountered just like two weeks ago was I was looking at putting a feature in PCALC, um, and it was to help, uh, uh, people with dyslexia. And there's a, a, a dyslexia font that somebody has developed and, uh, you know, it, it's shaped to, you know, make things easier to read. Right. This, this is the theory. And it's an open font and anyone can put it in their apps. And, you know, you don't need, you can sell an app that's got it in. Fair enough. And I, I was looking at this stuff and I, I sort of thought, well, I'd be, in, I'd had a few requests of it. I thought, well, that'd be an interesting thing to implement, you know, that you could like, anytime you're displaying a number, say display it using this particular font. And that would be a, a useful accessibility thing that might make my software uh, easier to use by a, a wider number of people. And I was looking at this and I, t- I coded it all up and I got to the point where, well, I want to make sure I've got correct um, attribution in, in the acknowledgements, you know, well, I'll, I'll look at this. And I was looking at the website and then like right at the bottom in the, the Q and a, there was a thing saying something about, um, somebody who had a patent on, uh, basically a dyslexia font was going after this person. And I thought, nope, nope, I'm, I'm not doing this again. And I stripped the whole stuff out because, uh, even the, the, the possibility of maybe at some point in the future being dragged into a lawsuit because I've used this thing, which might be or might not be a patented idea, you know? So uh, unfortunately that, that feature didn't make it and it didn't make it because I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to uh, get into that situation again. Yeah. Right there. You've got it. That is a, that is a piece of useful stuff that is, being limited and the danger that, I mean, again, if there's an idea there that needs to be protected, fair enough. But the, the entire atmosphere now seems to be, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother because just if somebody's claiming it and it, it's like, you, you just walk away from it. You've been bitten by this before. And this is a, there've been lots of conversations about it. Uh, worth having more in the future too, about, about where, patent reform needs to go in the U.S., especially uh, so that these things are not overly broad. I know somebody who stepped into a patent just the other week, and uh, and was uh, that was uh, my friend Rob Griffiths at, at Many Tricks Software, and they were, they were told that they were infringing on a patent for something that was also seemed broad and ridiculous, and many people pointed out lots of examples of prior art, which does happen. That just happened recently with Cloudflare, where they were attacked by a patent troll and had a bunch of people digging up prior art to prove that that patent should not have been granted. So many patents are granted that shouldn't be, that are poorly researched by the patent office, that are too broad. And uh, But once they've got them, that is a cudgel that they can use to, to threaten you until you just pay them off and make them go away, which is why they're called trolls, because they're like a troll at a bridge. And, and the other thing is that there's already, you know, like there's, there's a 20 years worth of um, or however many years worth of software patents, you know, like in the queue, yeah. uh, or not in the queue, but like have been granted and are, are currently valid. And so there's stuff that could have been granted 10 years ago that's still valid for another 10 years. That, um, even if you reformed 
uh, how pa- how software patents were granted today, you would probably still have 10, 20 years worth of stuff to deal with. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a very difficult, uh, situation. And I mean, with, with us, it's like, you know, we're a two person company, uh, and, uh, they, uh, they actually, they filed a lawsuit against us and Disney on the same day. And, you know, there, there was a slight, uh, difference in the size of companies involved there. And <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I even, when Jason asked me if I'd be on this podcast, I thought, you know, do I want to go on and say like anything negative about patent trolls in case somebody's (laughs) listening and thinks, hmm, let's look through your software and see what possible Uh, thing you could be. Uh, And and it's like, that's, that's, I don't know if that's an an issue, a a real uh, possibility, but it's this kind of thing that crossed my mind because it was like, there was at the time when this kicked off, there was such a sort of depression, uh, at that WWDC that followed it. And I talked to a number of developers there and a lot of them were just saying, you know, this used to be fun. You know, we were, we were like writing software and it, we were, we are creating these things and, you know, it was making us money, but you know, this was a creative thing that was, uh, giving us an, a way to express ourselves. And now it's, you know, it's become tainted. Yeah. And it's just not fun. And I mean, people have bounced back from that. And, uh, but it was just seeing it firsthand, how it was affecting people. Yeah. It it was very difficult. All right. Well, I'm sure this topic will come up again, unfortunately, but I'm going to end the podcast here. This is, we've reached the end point of download. I do want to thank my guest, Lisa Schmeiser. Where can people find what you do. I think the best place to start is on Twitter at Elschmeiser, L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. And that's where I link to day job stuff, uh, the column I write for The Observer called So What Who Cares, and um, podcasts I do, including this one. Yay. And James Thompson, thank you for being here. Where can people find the stuff that you do? Um, also, Twitter is a good place. Uh, James Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N. And uh, peakalk.com for my software. And uh, you can find me outside in the sunshine enjoying myself the rest of the evening. Very nice. Well, it's really foggy and and, and chilly here in California, so it's only fair that we've shipped our weather to to Scotland for once. (laughs) Uh, Thank you to Stephen Hackett for providing a guiding hand, as always, on this episode. Thanks, Stephen. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to Download. Until next week, we will be watching the headlines so you don't have to. Bye, everybody. Bye.